0: Defense attorney Riley listens as Hauptmann denies the kidnapping. As soon
1: as you get the idea of kidnapping this child, just as is set forth in that
0: letter. I never got an idea to kidnap any child. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast. Welcome back to New Jersey Criminal Podcast. Joining me today is Lisa Perlman. Uh, Ms. Perlman is a retired judge filmmaker, an award-winning historian, as well as a best-selling author. She's joining us here uh, to continue our discussion of the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping uh, and, and discuss in detail uh, her excellent award winner for true crime and Amazon bestseller, The Lindbergh Kidnapping, Suspect Number One, The Man Who Got Away. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for for joining me. I guess I should be referring to you as judge, so I apologize. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm curious um, how uh, you it was that you got involved in uh, researching and then writing the book on the Lindbergh kidnapping.
1: I started writing a book about the 1968. Uh, death penalty trial of Huey Newton, uh, who is a founder of the Black Panther Party, um, because I got interested in the fact that he had a pioneering woman lawyer who's uh, brilliant brief freedom on appeal. And she was a f- co-founder of California Women Lawyers, which I was on the board of. And after her death, we were giving out awards every year to uh, lawyers, women lawyers. Who exhibited similar dedication to the underserved in face in case to uh, prisoners uh, on death row? Um, in any event, uh, it had gotten lost to history. And I was surprised that Alan Dershowitz and others who wrote about uh, trials of the century, uh, which every couple of years uh, a famous trial is called that, um, didn't include it, most of them. And so I compared the Newton trial to other famous trials throughout the 20th century and the one that stood out to me was the Lindbergh kidnapping murder because it was still a mystery in many respects uh, today and none of the others from the early part of the 20th century were so I did some original research because for that first book on the Newton trial I could not even write a chapter about the Lindbergh case, just saying, well, some uh, people think that Houtman was properly executed for the crime and others think he was framed. I needed to get a handle as a retired judge on what I thought.
0: Understood, understood. And and here on New Jersey Criminal Podcast, we we are uh, focusing uh, this particular series on uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping as as one of the most famous crimes, the trial of the century, uh, so to speak, in New Jersey. Uh, you know the the case itself. Uh, we we know that March first, nineteen thirty two, uh, the baby was. Uh, you know, allegedly kidnapped from his nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home near Hopewell, New Jersey. And and as you've indicated, ultimately Richard Haltman uh, was uh, convicted and executed for this uh, murder. Your, your book took it in a little bit of a different direction and focused um, quite a bit on Charles Lindbergh Sr. Tell us what you learned about Uh, about him uh, and how that ties into the research that you did uh, and the conclusions that you've come to in your book.
1: Well, after I read uh, several books about the uh, Lindbergh kidnapping, it stood out that Lindbergh had either intentionally or negligently obstructed the investigation. Uh, The state police allowed him to be in charge. In fact, he was appointed to be in charge by the governor of New Jersey of this investigation of a crime that occurred in his own house while he was home. That should never have happened. In fact, uh, Scotland Yard had suggested infanticide should be looked into, but the New Jersey State Police didn't do that. And many clues were lost immediately. Many things were not followed up on. Um, and that was p- very peculiar. Also, uh, biographies of Lindbergh that I read um, showed that he had a very dark side, that uh, he liked to play what he considered to be practical jokes but were very cruel jokes on uh, other pilots in Army training, in other pil- uh, for- uh, against other pilots um, that he worked with uh, doing airmail routes, um, and, in fact, had hidden his own son at the age of eight months uh, in a closet for a while, uh, scaring the whole household um, before the child was discovered about half an hour uh, later. And that was actually the very first thing that uh, his wife and the nanny
0: assumed had happened on March 1, that he was playing another joke. Right, and you, you describe that in your book. Uh, he was also the one that found the first ransom note, is that correct? He said he found the first ransom note on the windowsill. There was a discrepancy between
1: uh, his account and that of the nanny as to whether the window was open at the time. Uh, He said it was shut because it was a rainstorm going on and it wasn't wet. Um, But it would have been very puzzling, and it was puzzling to the police, how someone could escape out that window with a heavy burden, 27 to 30 pound child in a burlap bag, and manage to leave the uh, envelope on the windowsill and then closed the window while trying to descend. Uh, that was very weird, but the weirdest part was that the nanny and his uh, wife, Anne, did not see an envelope on that windowsill or anywhere else in the room when they searched it before Lindbergh entered it after the child's disappearance.
0: And now that was the, the first of uh, several uh, ransom notes, correct? Yes, there were another
1: dozen or so ransom notes over the next month which made headlines, which I consider to have been an elaborate hoax.
0: Handwriting experts uh, became an issue uh, in the case. Um, And, you know, I I had a case, uh, I'm a a former prosecutor, and I had a case uh, once that I prosecuted where uh, we uh, had a handwriting expert. It's It's a very interesting analysis um, explain for our listeners uh, what the handwriting analysis uh, and any other forensic evidence showed in this particular case and how it ties into your theory.
1: well, the handwriting analysis was not done properly um, originally um, Houtman was made by the police to cop to uh, to listen to them and write down word for word this um what was in the ransom notes, and he was given so-called spelling help, meaning misspellings that matched those um, in the notes. The first two handwriting experts, the Osbournes, who looked at the samples that uh, the police chose, and they didn't take the first sample necessarily, they kept making Hauptmann rewrite them until they liked one, um, but they looked at those, and the Osbournes said, no, it is not the same. Then the Osbournes were told, that um, almost $14,000 in ransom money had been found in Helpman's garage, and they changed their opinion. There's an internal FBI report of someone, a staff member, an agent who was there, who was appalled that the police would put their thumb on the scales by giving that kind of information to the expert that had nothing to do with handwriting analysis. After the Osborne's changed their mind, then other experts were brought in and they testified that one of the biggest factors in determining that Hauptmann must have written these notes was similar misspellings. And those were dictated by the police. Um, today you'd have a, a lawyer present if if any of that was being done um, on behalf of the defendant. You would not um have it done under those circumstances. And it's obviously an improper um process,
0: right. My recollection in the case that I had was we we had a, a number of control samples done first um, it is a it is a much more uh, elaborate process uh you know in in the in this century twenty first century than um, than it was back then, certainly how how do you account for the um, bills that were um uh, traced or tracked or found in the possession of of Hauptmann.
1: well Hauptmann told the police over and over again even though he was beaten um that uh, the same story um and which was that he had a business associate named isidore fish who handed him a shoebox in december of 1933 at a farewell party that Hauptmann was giving for fish who was headed back to germany to be with his family um, Fish supposedly told Hauptmann that this box tied with a well, string uh, inclo- included uh, important papers. That's what was inside. Houtman put that at the top shelf of a uh, closet in his kitchen and forgot about it. Uh, Fish was um, tubercular and died in March of 1934 in Germany. That summer of... 1934 in august there was a rainstorm in the bronx and it uh, there was a leak in the kitchen and it came into that closet so Hauptman emptied the closet and found this box that was now very damp opened it up and said that was the first time that he saw there was money in it when the police asked him about the lindbergh kidnapping he said he didn't even know where the lindberghs lived
0: wow interesting interesting and so, you know, obviously, uh, Hauptmann's wife uh, spent many, many, many years after his death proclaiming uh, his innocence until her own death. Um, was there any indication that she was able to uh, corroborate his claim with regard to that piece of information, or is that unknown? Uh, she hired
1: a lawyer um, who helped her get um, a many, many documents that had been kept from the defense uh, by the state police. They were uh, released, you know, it was probably 40 years later. Um, but um, she her insistence that he was innocent was what intrigued me in the first place. Um, she did convince other investigators. Um, uh, Kennedy, Ludovic Kennedy wrote a book, The Airman and the Carpenter. Uh, Tony Scaduto wrote a book, Scapegoat. Um, both of them uh, detailing some evidence that had come forward um, through her efforts and through their own efforts um, to uh, show that uh, Hauptmann was framed. Um, But nobody had uh, assumed that Lindbergh was part of that. Uh, What she knew um, was that her husband, every Tuesday and Friday, picked her up at the Bronx Bakery where she worked as a waitress at 8 p.m. And he did so the night of march 1 1932 there were two strangers who testified on the behalf of the defense that they recalled being there that night because of a peculiar thing that had happened which is that Houtman when he arrived was asked to walk the landlord's not i'm sorry not the landlord's the the um owner's dog of the bakery um, and so he was walking this German shepherd and some man accosted him thinking that it was his own German shepherd that had been lost. The two were both German, spoken German, and Hauptman said, come back to the bakery, I'll show you the owner. And so the fellow remembered that night because it was later that same evening that it was blaring on the radio that Lindbergh's ch- child was kidnapped in New Jersey. Um there wow. was a fellow sitting there at, at the bakery who recalled being there a week after his son was hospitalized um seeing a man run in and tell the waitress in german this man thinks it's his dog or something to that effect um so both of them were found came forward and testified but they weren't believed
0: one of the thing that one of the things that interests me um, and, and I'm sure you can appreciate this as I, I, as I'm looking at this case, I keep thinking about, you know, what would happen now in today's, with today's, uh, court rules and rules of evidence, um, how would this trial have played out? And, uh, one of the pieces of evidence at the trial was all of this testimony regarding, uh, the wood from the ladder. Uh, and, you know, as as, as you know, uh, the scientific reliability of certain types of evidence is often challenged um, by defense attorneys, uh, and the courts have created different standards with regard to, you know, the re- reliability of scientific evidence. Explain for us the the issue with the, the wood from the ladder and how the prosecution attempted to uh, prove their case through what they... What they argued was, you know, kind of airtight evidence in the forms of scientific, you know, evidence.
1: Well, the police took over Hauptmann's apartment the, the day of his arrest, and it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that they made this claim about um, one uh, rail of the ladder having been planed down um, because it was only about three and three quarter inches wide, and um, from a floorboard which originally had a tongue and groove which were not present on the rail Um, and they said there's a missing eight foot piece approximately of a floorboard in the attic and it was cut down to make this a little over six and a half foot uh rail um immediately uh, when that he heard about it said the police must have manufactured that there were super um problems with the way this was handled which wouldn't be handled today number one um the uh wood expert that they brought in um did a visual comparison uh which they don't do anymore uh this would today would be wood dna test uh to compare the rail uh, to a, the piece of uh, floorboard that was uh, brought into court from the attic um, and that's something i would like to see done today um it has never been done but the police have kept both pieces of wood um, there were other issues um, about it the the defense experts today would have been given access to that attic they were never given access before or during the trial even though they demanded it they barely got any time to look at the wood samples in court before they had to testify also today the um state expert would have had to disclose the extensive notes that he had taken pre-trial, uh, would, none of which came to
0: the defense, and many of which were inconsistent with his trial testimony. Wow, that's that's uh, hearing you say that, that's uh, concerning and disturbing. It's interesting to me that uh, the if the police still have both pieces of wood, uh, in evidence, if wh- wh- how and why they haven't um, done that wood DNA testing,
1: um, uh, Dr. Henry Lee, who's a leading forensic expert uh, on botany, um, made that recommendation in a book years ago.
0: About that, well, maybe maybe someone listening can uh, can suggest again that 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 occur. Um, I I
1: am actually suggesting that again <laughs> occur. We're trying to get Hauptmann posthumously exonerated. Uh, there there's even worse um, uh, evidence, though, that was at the trial, and that was about the corpse. When you want to compare it to today, mm-hmm. um, Lindbergh um, improperly being put in the charge of the investigation when he should have been a suspect, ordered the cremation of the corpse only after a partial autopsy when other uh, experts were coming in and p- were volunteering to do a full autopsy so no full autopsy was ever done on a homicide uh, victim which was against New Jersey protocol at the time um, and would certainly um, be required today so that was um, uh, another problem and, and the. Beyond that, the prosecutor, and I think you would appreciate this, opened the trial by claiming that Hauptmann um, propped a ladder against the um, house, climbed up to the second floor, um, took the sleeping child from his crib, stuffed him in a burlap bag, and then as he was exiting out the window, dropped the child um, two stories to the mud below, cracking his skull and killing him instantly. Um, That was the claim. During the trial, the defense said why didn't the child cry out? So at closing argument, the prosecutor changed his theory and said instead, oh no, what really happened is he was killed in his crib, um, that Houtman had a chisel in his hand and crushed the kid's skull um, and strangled him, which both of which were totally contrary to the medical um, reports of the Uh, examiner of the corpse, um, the, there was no blood found by the police, um, on the crib in the nursery, on the ground, the medical examiner testified in a prior proceeding that it was impossible for the skull fractures to be caused by a two story fall into mud, Um, And there was no blood found in the burlap bag that they uh, uh, had in court that they said was used to transport the child and the police had and the prosecutor had a an 18-page forensic report by squib laboratories which is now bristol myers squib that um, also proved that there was no blood um, on the child's t-shirts that the corpse was wearing, on the sleeping suit that the, that had been separately returned that the child wore that night, um, or on the ground uh, in the leaves or the dirt um, where the corpse was found. No blood anywhere. And yet the corpse, when it was found, was largely skeletal.
0: So those arguments of the prosecutor in their closing argument uh, were not based on any facts that were uh testified to or brought in during during the trial
1: no they were not they found the chisel in the yard the chisel uh, which he alleged was the uh, alternate idea for the for the murder and yet the chisel had no blood on it either and and they knew the police knew also and the prosecutor knew that there wasn't helpman's chisel it had somebody else's initials on it they implicated uh, to the jury that Hauptman had a uh, it must have been Hauptmann's because they said that one of his chisels was missing when they went to his uh, garage in September 1934. But they knew that it wasn't a match.
0: There was uh, an individual who got involved, uh, Condon, um, who supposedly met uh, to receive uh, or to 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 pass off um, the the ransom money. Never identified Houtman as that particular person um, wh- actually he did well yeah explain, explain to us he didn't. right he's flipped he flipped on that, so explain to us right why that's important in your analysis.
1: well, it's important that neither Condon nor Lindbergh uh, could identify Houtman as cemetery John, the fellow that um that condon said he met in uh in the cemetery in the bronx uh to um exchange fifty thousand dollars in recorded ransom notes uh, money uh for a note telling him where the child should be found uh which turned out to be a wild goose chase but condon spent an hour um with cemetery john at one cemetery a woodland cemetery earlier uh in march and then came back on april 2nd and met with cemetery john again in a different cemetery saint raymond's um so he had described to the police what this fellow looked like and the first time that he saw hautman in the bronx at the before the grand jury he said this is not the fellow essentially i'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. but he couldn't identify him and and uh Lindbergh said i was sitting in a car 200 feet away outside of the cemetery and i heard um this fellow shout out uh to hey doc or hey doctor um and i'm not sure i could ever recognize that fellow uh at trial though off just a few months later um Lindbergh um said it was Hauptmann he recognized the voice On appeal from the um, death penalty um, that the jury awarded, Uh, Houtman's uh, attorney, uh, Fisher, um, replicated the the event by having someone sitting in a car 200 feet from St. Raymond's Cemetery, and there was no way that a fellow could hear um, someone clearly unless they shouted, which would make their voice different than it would be normally, and also two and a half years later, nobody could do that. You couldn't even do it probably a month later.
0: Right. Um, uh,
1: so uh, that was not, it, it wasn't possible. So the identification at trial that Lindbergh did prompted Condon to change his testimony and say, yes, I identify um, Houtman as cemetery job. And it was totally contradictory to what he had said um, more than once um, before.
0: Well, and I was going to say, too, I mean, why in the world weren't the police waiting in the wings, so to speak, to scoop up this person that interacted with Condon? Good question. You
1: you want to know why? Because uh, Lindbergh called them off. They wanted to be there. The New York police wanted to be there. The New Jersey police wanted to
0: do surveillance of this meeting. And Lindbergh said no surveillance. And they didn't. And the other thing that's interesting is that Lindbergh would not have been permitted uh, to testify that he recognized Haltman's voice, um it wasn't he Haltman wasn't someone he was familiar with or or someone whose voice that he knew. no
1: no, he as stranger's voice, um, th- their experts can say you you could not recognize um with that much time. it's over two years um between them, especially the, from that distance. And it was only a couple of words,
0: right and and it it also struck me if you look at the timeline the the swiftness that uh this went to trial uh and the swiftness within which uh he was ultimately executed although there was an appeal in there you know and as we as we all know now uh that would have uh taken years and years and years to have um you know gotten all resolved so um to, it, today but then it was much shorter right We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned, there is more to come. The best way to follow, subscribe, rate, or message the show is to visit njcriminalpodcast.com. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast,